You know, uh, I want to just say before we get started in the Word again this morning, uh, by the way, we are going to be back in Mark chapter 9 this morning, but while you're turning there, um, I just want to say to you, I know how easy it is to get discouraged nowadays. I know how easy it is because we all live in the real world, don't we? And there are trials and tribulations and there are things going on in this world at this time that if you'd have told me 20 years ago that it would be this way in 2021, I'd have just, I'd have laughed almost because it's too good for Hollywood. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up, right? We live in an insane world and I just came from uh, Lake Charles. I spent several days in Lake Charles this week uh, with Samaritan's Purse. You know, they flooded again down there after two uh, hurricanes last year that pretty well wiped it off the map. Then they had to put up with sometime in May, I think it was, they had flooding down there. And a lot of those people had not recovered from the hurricanes. And then their house flooded on top of an already bad situation. So you get, you get a different perspective on things when you go and minister to people that just seem to be daily bombarded with things that are beyond our capabilities to cope with. But I want to say this before we get into the Word. We serve a good God. We serve an all-powerful God. And He... He sees our hurting. And I don't want you to ever think that you're alone in this battle because you're not. Every church, every family, and every individual is struggling with the same type things. And if you're not in a storm right now, you're just coming out of one, or you're just getting ready to go into one. Because storms are going to come. But we do have a Savior. We do have someone who cares about us. And we are, by the grace of God, we are going to make it home one day. So don't lose your joy. Don't lose your focus. And don't lose looking up. Because when you see all these things happening, He told us to look up. Not look outward, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. So before we get started, let's just pray together that God would uh, focus our hearts for a few minutes and that we'd be able to hear what He wants to say to us through His Word this morning. Lord God, we do come to You in the mighty name of Jesus. And, And God, we realize that apart from You, we can do nothing. Apart from You, we are helpless and weak and of no consequence in this world. But Lord God, I've read in your book, through Christ who strengthens me, I can do all things. Lord, we thank you for that fact this morning. We thank you that we're not alone. We thank you that suffering comes to us all, but Lord God, we have a great healer. Lord, I pray this morning that you would heal hearts and minds, that God, you would restore Uh, lost passion, that God, that you would give us a hunger for your word, and that God, when we leave here, we wouldn't just 
feast upon it and do nothing with it, but God, that we would exercise the spiritual gifts that you've given us, that we would take this spiritual nourishment and we would turn it into energy that would glorify, exalt, and lift up the name of Jesus in a dark, dying world out there. So God, uh, just lead us and guide us by your Spirit. Give us that holy hunger that we need, Lord. Um, illuminate this Word. Lord God, if, it, if it's just me, it's not going to mean anything, but Lord, if your Spirit illuminates it and helps it to take root in our heart, it will produce fruit that will last for all of eternity. God, bless us with your presence. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to start in verse 2. That seems kind of odd, but uh, that is where we left off. I am going to go ahead and read verse 1, just because it'll help tie us in back to where we need to be. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to read down through verse 13. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, or Elijah, if you will, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught? But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. I want to talk to you just a little while today about glorious suffering. Glorious suffering. That seems to be contradictory. They don't, they don't seem to go together, glory and suffering. But that, that is the lesson that the Lord is teaching us in this passage of Scripture because the passage of Scripture that we're looking at is just a continuation in the lesson that He started with them last week. Because you remember what we talked about last week? 
Jesus is praying and he, uh, he takes this opinion poll. He takes a poll, a public poll. He asks the disciples, you know, who do people say that I am? Who do man say that I am? And Peter speaks up for the bunch like he always does. Peter's always got an answer, even if it's wrong, right? <laughs> but he opens up his mouth. He says, you're the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And, and Jesus tells him, correct, Peter. Move to the head of the class. And then he turns right around after making that confession. The confession out of his mouth was correct. But then he turns right around. See, he gets the process. Here's where the confusion comes in. It's, it's confusing to our little feeble minds to, to see how glory can come out of suffering. To see how gain can come out of loss. To see how victory can be snatched out of the jaws of defeat, right? Right? Because the cross and suffering and dying, all these things don't add up to victory for us in the flesh, do they? Let's be honest. If I were to tell you I was born to die like Jesus was, what would you think about me? That dude's crazy. We want to be born to live, right? We're born to... We're born with an innate sense, I want to continue living, no matter what. I've got cancer. The doctors told me I have cancer. I want to keep living. I will pump poison into my body to see if I can kill the cancer that's within me. If you'll just let me live a, lot, a little while longer. Jesus was born to die. He was born for one purpose. That was to go to a cruel, bloody cross and to die in our place. And He did that willingly. He did that joyfully. In Hebrews it says, For the joy set before Him, He went to the cross despising the shame. So that all seems in confliction with one another. It's a conflict. And so Peter, he turns right around. Jesus begins to teach them well, I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be falsely accused by the scribes and the Pharisees. They're going to hang me on a bloody cross and I'm going to die. Oh, no, no, Lord, you're not. You're our Messiah. You're going to deliver us from Roman oppression. We're going to win a great uh, military victory through you. You're going to lead us into the promised land, Lord. You are not going to die on a cross. That's not going to happen in... in Peter gets bumped back to the back of the class. Put your little dunce hat on. Sit on the stool in the corner, Peter. You got it wrong. You're right about one thing. I am the Messiah, but you're wrong about the process. You're confused about the process. So this is kind of where we pick up and where we're going to continue on in this lesson because I used to think that the main reason that Jesus took the three, these three guys, Peter, James, and John with him, was kind of because they were the teacher's pet, so to speak, you know? That they were, he was more intimate with this little inner circle because you remember later on, when, before he goes to the cross, 
It's these three men that he takes with him into the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. And don't get me wrong, I do think he has a special intimacy with these men, but I think in this scenario, in this case, there's more to it than just that. He's not saying the other nine don't really matter to me as much as you guys do. I think he's maybe taking them with him because they're the biggest failures in many ways. Because you remember Peter? Peter always opens his mouth before he thinks. Engage your brain, Peter, before you start talking. That's my big problem. I say a lot of things without really thinking it through, and then later on you're like, boy, that was really bad. I shouldn't have said that. Peter's like that. He pops off real quick. What about James and John, the sons of thunder? You know what they were? They were old redneck knuckleheads that would rather fight than anything. They'd rather fight than eat. You ever known people like that? They'd rather back 40 foot backwards up a thorn tree to fight than to stand on the ground and be at peace with somebody. There's just people like that. Peter and James were hotheads, you remember? And I think they needed this lesson more than anybody. They needed to understand that John, John, you're not going to fight your way through this, buddy. James, you, you and your brother ain't going to be able to team up and be the tag team, the NWO champions. You're not, you're, you're not going to do it. You're going to have to die. And Peter, you're going to have to quit with this thinking like you think. There's no crown without a cross. The victory doesn't come first. The battle comes first, right? And when you're in the battle, it doesn't look like many times you're going to win. So, he wants to confirm some things for them in this passage of Scripture that we're looking at. He wants to confirm a few things. Number one, he's confirming the message, the process of suffering before the glory. He's telling them, look guys, I'm going to take you up here. I'm going to take you on this mountain. I'm going to be transfigured before you. But now get this, I've still got to come down off this mountain and go to the cross for you. It's not the other way around. And see, the message that we tell the world many times, the message that we portrayed to lost people out there is come to Jesus. You'll never be poor again. You'll never be sick again. All you have to do is pray this special hocus pocus prayer in Jesus' name and all your troubles magically go away. And that's just not the truth, is it? Christian people's houses still flooded in Lake Charles. Christian churches still flooded. Christian people still get cancer. Christian marriages sometimes go down the tubes. Christian children sometimes abandon their parents. These things still happen, right? We live in the real world. 
We don't live in a make-believe world where everything is good and it's all gravy. Do you know, I work with some, I volunteered with some northern people this week that were down in Lake Charles. Do you know people don't know what tomato gravy is? I was like, my stars, I wish I had the fixings, I'd fix you some. It's not all tomato gravy and biscuits like my mother-in-law used to make. <laughs> and but, buddy, let me tell you something, hers were good. But sometimes there's bitterness. Sometimes there's seasons of trials that you don't think you're ever going to come out on the other side of. Sometimes you think I'm going to die right here, but you're not. When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. And at the end of it all, there's a resurrection to come. And Jesus is just giving them a little, he's saying, guys, I know you're still confused about this, so I want to confirm some things. I am going to take you to where you want to be. And he manifested his glory for them. But the suffering's got to come first. But he also confirmed the law and the prophets. That the word of God, every word out of the mouth of God is true. And you know what we have in the United States of America? Nobody really believes the Bible anymore. They say they do. They give it lip service. Sometimes they misquote it. They quote it, but it's under the wrong circumstances. They've got it on a pretense. Folks, the Bible will never mean what you want it to mean. It will always mean what it means. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. This word is either true or it's not, but I want to tell you what, it's been tested by the hand of Father Time, and it is right, and it is true, and it is unbending, unyielding, unchangeable. You will either align yourself with this word or this word will crush you. But it can't be any other way. And see, we've got a bunch of false teachers out there that are telling people a bunch of lies and a bunch of false stuff. And he was saying, you know what? Here's Moses and Elijah. They're here. Their confirmation that I am the fulfillment of the law. And I am also the fulfillment of every word out of the mouth of the prophets. You know, we got a lot of false prophets running around today predicting all kind of goofy stuff. You know what happened in the old days if you were a professing prophet and you got it wrong? <laughs> they took you out there and stoned you. If we did that today, if we practiced stoning today, that would stop a lot of this. But we, alas, we can't do that anymore, right? We've got to give them grace. Even though we want to stone them sometimes, amen? Let's be honest, it's Sunday morning. But see, Jesus Christ is the confirmation of that. He's, he's the fulfillment of the law, and I love this part of it. Elijah also alludes to the rapture of the church, the bride of Christ out of this world. Because how did Elijah leave this world? He didn't leave through the corridor of death, did he? He went up in a whirlwind. 
The horses and chariots of God. Here they come. That's a picture of the church being lifted up out of this world. Isn't that amazing? And His transfiguration is also confirmation of an inward change that is outwardly manifested. You notice what it said about it? It says His clothing became shining, but it wasn't His clothing that was shining, was it? He didn't have on some magical garment that had electric lights, that had Christmas lights on it, and he turned it on. It was battery operated, and his clothing was lighted up. He wasn't a light bright. There was something inside that made everything else shine. You see, that's another thing that the church gets wrong. They think it's all about outward conformity to a set of rules and regulations and everybody's sour and and mad and I've got to do this and they're dragging their knuckles on the carpet coming into the house of God and there's no joy in their heart. I want you to tell I want to tell you this morning I'm here not because I had to be here. I'm here because I get to be here. I'm here because I serve a good God that in spite of what's going on in this crazy world out there, He loves me. And He gave me a sound mind and He's got clothes on my back. He put food on my table. I could walk through the doors on two legs that still work. I've got a good God. And there was a day and time when I that was the furthest thing from my mind was being concerned with the things of God. I thought it was all about me. And then He changed me, not from the outside in, not because I conformed to a set of rules and regulations, but because I submitted and surrendered my life to an awesome God who loves me. And the change that you see in me is not the clothes. It's not my watch. That's a $15 Walmart watch. The change that you see before you comes in here. That's where it always starts. And that's how Jesus showed the disciples His perfect humanity. You know, the Gospel of John doesn't have this transfiguration account in it. And you know why? Because John's Gospel is all about the deity of Christ. That Jesus is God. He's Lord. But you know what? Mark is saying, yes, Jesus is God, but He's also man and He's perfect humanity. You'll never see another perfect human on this earth outside of Jesus, right? We're all a work in progress. Why why do we Christians expect perfection out of one another? Why can't we show each other a little grace every once in a while? When I want grace, boy, I, I love grace, but then when somebody else needs grace from me, well, I don't like to give it sometimes. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't an Indian giver? Whew, yeah. He doesn't take it back and say, well, you didn't do right. That's mine. He gives it, and He doesn't take it back. Hallelujah. He's good to us. He revealed His perfect humanity, and... Something else that the Father confirmed in there, He said uh, in verse 7, it says, there was a cloud that overshadowed them 
And a voice came out of that cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. You know what the father confirmed? You've got to come by my son or you can't come at all. I used Moses. I used the law. I used Elijah. He was a prophet. He was a man of God. He brought the children of Israel back to me. I used him up there on Mount Carmel, but you know what? Moses came on, I mean, Elijah and Moses went on to be with me. They were just men. But my son, you better hear him. You better know him. You better walk with him because he's the only one. So he teaches us that this message is confirmed that it's true that you don't, you don't have to wonder about it. You don't have to guess. You can know that it's true. But there's also, he has to correct them again in verses 11 through 13. Because if you remember, we read in verse 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he told them the time was not right yet. He said, don't tell anybody what you've seen until the Son of Man risen from the dead. In other words, he's saying, you can't get the cart ahead of the horse. I haven't done these things yet. I'm just, I'm giving you a little foretaste of glory divine here. I'm letting you see something that you really shouldn't have to be, have to see to believe and trust in me. But I'm, I'm gracious, I'm good. I'm going to let you guys see this, but it hasn't happened yet. So don't tell anybody about all this yet. Don't go write a book. 30 minutes on the, on the mountain with the transfigured Jesus or something like that. Don't go sell a million copies. Hold all that in until I am resurrected. But then he says, and they, verse 10 says, they kept saying within themselves, questioning with one another, what this rising, they still, they're, still not, they're still not quite there, but that's okay. Because he picks up there in verse 11 and he says, and they ask him, why, why say the scribes that Elijah got to come first? And he answered and told them, Elijah does come, he's, first, he's come first, and restoreth all, all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be said at naught. But I say unto you, Elijah is indeed come, and they've done whatever they wanted to with him just like it is written of him. You know, I, I kind of dug into to this, and, you know, if you go to the, Old the last Old Testament book, Malachi, the last Old Testament writer, and you read in chapters 3 and 4, it, he prophesied, Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come. And we all know, of course, who it is. We know that it's John the Baptist, that he was alluding to John the Baptist. But you see, they say the scriptures bear out that there's going to be a man in the spirit of Elijah that's going to come in the last days. And he's going to draw the nation of Israel back to their king. He's going to prepare the way, not for the first coming, but for the second coming. But I fully believe that if they had believed John the Baptist, John the Baptist was Elijah. That, that's what Jesus is saying right here but you see 
I read in Matthew's gospel in chapter 11 and then in verse uh, chapter 17, I believe it is there in Matthew, we get a, a little better picture of this prophecy uh, that he's talking about here because he said, they asked him about Elijah again. They were t he was talking about John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. He said, John the Baptist is the greatest preacher that's ever been born of woman. And he said, in the spirit of Elijah, and I'm just paraphrasing all this, he said, Elijah, uh, John the Baptist came as a forerunner for me. And he's, he's setting the way, and in the spirit of Elijah, he is drawing the children back to their fathers and all these things. But he said, here's what he told them. What shall I compare this generation to? He said, you're like a bunch of kids in the marketplace. You want to play wedding. You say, well, we, we, we put on some music for you. We wanted to play wedding, and you wouldn't dance. So he said, well, you won't play wedding ceremony with me, then let's play funeral. We played you a funeral dirge, and you wouldn't mourn. Basically what he told them, you're a bunch of bratty kids that won't do anything. And he said, I'm going to leave you to yourself. And I'm going to let you deal with all this for a while. And then I'll return and make things right. So, you know what he's saying there? There's not going to be anything right until he comes back and sets up his kingdom. And you know what that tells me? For all those people out there that their excuse for not being part of the church is whether that church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites, well, why don't you come on and join the crowd? You go to Walmart, and there's a bunch of hypocrites in Walmart, amen? And there, hey, I'm going to hit a little closer to home with some of you. There's a bunch of hypocrites at Little League Ball. But parents don't stop taking them youngins to that ballpark. Some people worship their children at the ballpark more than they do Jesus. So don't, don't talk to me about hypocrites. That finger points right back at you. Jesus is going to make it right one day. You just hang on. Right? So don't get to thinking that we've got to have the ideal down here and I'm not going to be a part of it. A lot of people have that thought in their head. Well, I don't like what they're doing. They made a bad decision. I'm going to pick up my tinker toys and go home. No, don't do that. You're a mess too, just like me, right? If anybody's got it all figured out, raise your hand. I'd like to talk to you after church. We're all just practicing, right? So just, just let the Lord work in you. Let the Lord speak to you. Show grace. Show mercy. He is going to come back and set it all right. But it's, we've just got to work our way through the suffering. We've got to suffer for a little while before we have the victory parade. 
You know, uh, I was thinking this morning while I was preparing to, to say this to you. You know, um, Lisa bought a, a book the other day. It's from the World War II generation, and it's just a, a huge book of just testimonies about men that fought in the war and, and the women that stayed home and made the best of what they could with a bad situation. And it's just their testimony, and it's, it's just so powerful and so moving. But I thought about something this morning when I was getting ready to preach to you. What if on December 8th, 1941, they would have had a victory parade in the streets of America? That'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? After one of the worst days in the history of our nation, where thousands of men died and our naval fleet was just almost decimated to nothing, we'd have turned around the next day and had victory parades in the streets of America. That was foolish. But victory did come, didn't it? Now it came at a high price because we lost boys by the thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And it took a few years and it took some deprivation from the folks here at home. I've heard my grandpa talk about it all. You got a certain amount of clothes each year. You got a, you got a pair of shoes. And if your shoes wore out before you got your allotment next year, well, that's just too bad. You just you didn't get them till next year. But finally one day, they all came home, the ones that were still living. And they did come home to a victory parade, but it wasn't until the battle was over. And that's what's wrong with the church. We want the victory parade before the battle's over. Folks, don't give up. Keep on fighting. One of these days we are going to be in the victory parade. You got it? It's not a question of if we're going to win or not. It's just when the victory parade comes. So I want to tell you three little practical thoughts about this passage of Scripture and then we can go home. But I want you to think about this. First thought I had, an inward change is the first necessary thing that's got to take place. Can't have outward conformity. The change has to come from the inside out. Some people get that mixed up. The devil wants you to get that mixed up. The devil loves religious people. He loves religion, period. Because he knows religion doesn't save anybody. A relationship with the living God is what saves you. You've got to be born again. But then that second thought follows right along with it. If there is a true inward change, there is going to be a manifestation of that outwardly. There are no secret Christians. Do you know that? If people have to wonder if you're a Christian or not, you better check your birth certificate. There may be something wrong. Because I can't help but tell who my daddy is. I serve a good father, right? I've got a heavenly father. He's worth boasting about. He's worth bragging about. He's worth telling the whole world about. 
So it's going to be manifested outwardly. And the third one just goes right along with it too. Jesus alone is our sole hope. The Father spoke out of heaven and that cloud overshadowed them. He spoke out of that cloud. He said, pay attention to Him. He's it. He's the only one. I'm not sending another. This is not practice. You're not going to graduate and become God like the Mormons teach. I'm sorry. I don't put anybody down. I don't judge anyone, but they're dead wrong. Jesus is God and He is human. How do I reconcile that? I don't know. I've got a 12th grade education, but I do know this. I believe the Word of God. So it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Amen.